Hey folks, thanks for joining me for this episode of the Embellish Podcast, a podcast focused on product stories, product storytellers, interesting brand ambassadors, and anything else that I happen to come up with. Whether you're a bourbon fan, a geek, a casual observer, or someone just floating through this channel, I hope you find what I have to say interesting. If you got here by chance, please take a moment to hit the subscribe button. Hopefully I can be found on any podcasting platform that exists. And if you can't find me on a platform, send me an email at embellishpod at gmail.com. I'll try to get that taken care of. I also generally live stream the recording of these episodes on YouTube on Wednesday nights around 9.30 p.m. Central Standard Time. This is the first time I've done this on Wednesday night in a long time, so hope you have an opportunity to hop over here and see what's going on. You can find all of my links on Instagram at EmbellishPod or Twitter with the exact same handle. I have a website. It is www.embellishpod.com. It's also a place to pick up these links, episode details, and more. This week, we are going to be talking about um, crops. We're going to be opening some bottles that I have sitting around. Picked up quite a few over the past little bit, talking about anything that's going on, and just basically rambling for the next 20, 30, 40 minutes, whatever happens to happen. Um, over the last couple of weeks, lots of things have happened. Uh, had an opportunity to be a part of a Zoom tasting last Saturday uh, with Key in the Lake. Got to taste six or seven different types of spirits. Hold on. Oh, that spilled everywhere. That was awesome. It smells good, at least. Um, Zoom tasting with Key in the Lake. If you don't follow Key in the Lake, if you don't follow Jake over at Key in the Lake, you're really missing out. Um, Jake is a brand ambassador. I'm not exactly sure what his role is, but he works for Starward, which is an Australian single malt company. But he also has a pretty great um, whiskey podcast. I think his tagline is the best whiskey podcast without whiskey in the name. Um, He's not wrong, probably, but... Um, he, he does a lot of interesting things. I've had an opportunity to do some tastings with him. So we got an opportunity to taste some Irish whiskey, some Scotch whiskey, some Australian whiskey, um, some rye from the United States, uh, a couple of different rye from the United States, or a couple of different, a rye from the United States and a bourbon from the United States. It was part of the World Whiskey Day. Um, they set up a live stream, you know, we're able to opportunity, have the opportunity to hand deliver some stuff. It was a super, super fun uh, experience. I only got to sit through a part of it because it just so happened that a portion of it overlapped with my um, oldest daughter's dance recital. So you'll have that things kind of get in the way. Uh, the first drink of the night, what we're going after, I've got six here. We'll see if we make it through all six of them uh, and if I still make sense at the end of the night. Uh, we're going with Company Distilling out of Tennessee. Uh, you may or may not have seen these recently. It's a straight bourbon whiskey that is finished in Maplewood. Um, some pretty big names uh, behind that brand. Picked it up, never opened it. Had an opportunity to open it, just just haven't had a chance. I've had uh, tons of other bottles that have kind of taken uh, precedence. But like I said, last weekend, great opportunity to do that. And then uh, followed up directly after that on Sunday. There was a live tasting with Chill Filtered, another podcast you should follow. There's going to be a series of podcasts that I'm just telling you guys, y'all really need to be uh, paying attention to following. But um, with their Patreon group, they do a um, live tasting, live show, live stream, not sure exactly what you want to call it, uh, where you get an opportunity to join them while they live stream, taste some of the the whiskey that they're tasting. Um, this week it was, or this this quarter it was, I believe, Templeton Rye. Um, it was, you know, pretty good, pretty good, uh, pretty good stream. And, you know, the stream's still up on YouTube. So if you have some Templeton Rye, uh, you can pour some, hop over and listen to what they got to say. Those, uh, Cole and Robbie are uh, two really interesting characters. And, um, I've had an opportunity to work with them uh, a number of times. 
got a chance to go on their episode, their podcast. They live streamed with us around the new year. Us, like there's somebody else here. It's just me. They live streamed with me. Um, but I say us because both of them joined me. And then we might do something again later on this summer. Because um, I'd really enjoy being with those guys. They have a pretty fun podcast. They're pretty good about tasting. Um, it, was, it was a really interesting show. And then, was it... I guess it was technically before that. Before that, I had another tasting. Uh, it was a series of Jack Daniels whiskeys that were not rye um, with uh, David from the Whiskey Ring podcast. Another one. You absolutely should go listen to that. Um, he's a little uh, he's a little too smart for me sometimes. Um, really, really smart guy. Has some, some wonderful content, but we tasted through everything from Jack Daniels number 7 all the way up to Coy Hill. There were some single barrels in there. There was a Jack Daniels 10. And one of the real fun things, and, and I'm waiting on this to sort of marinate and create, uh, the Coy Hill that he was able to share uh, with us, um, we all got hand-delivered our, our particular samples, was um, in the same warehouse location as the Jack Daniels 10 that we had. And it's actually a nine-year version of it. It's just a significantly higher proofed. And so I actually took that Coy Hill sample and, as best I could, you know, with non-scientific instruments, proofed it down to be at the same proof as the Jack Daniels 10. And we'll let it sit with that water uh, for a few days, and then we'll give it a try and see um, if there's any similarities. Of course, I don't have a super well-trained palate. Um, I'm not that guy. But we'll see what it has to do. You know, we'll see. We'll see what kind of comes out of it or whatever. But this company, Distilling Whiskey, uh, is obviously going to be sourced, huh. sourced out of Ohio. So that can kind of you can kind of uh, guess as to what you think those are. Well, they're pretty good. Uh, you know, this is this is one of those bottles that. Maybe it's not going to be the first thing that you're going to pick up off the shelf. Maybe not going to be the first thing that you're going to get like super, super excited about. Um, but it's a new offering from a new brand um, with some new concepts. They're doing some maple finishing. And so the first and the second one that I'll uh, run through tonight uh, are both going to be maple finished, which um, allows it to still be a bourbon, uh, even though some folks uh, have concerns over the the pre-filtration, whatever it is. Um it's got a little bit of spice to it. I don't, I don't know what the mash bill on is. I didn't look. I don't have any research on any of these aside from what's actually on the bottle. Um, but, you know, that's what you can sort of expect from from what I've got going on here. Um, it's a little little fruity, a little, little spicy. Um, definitely sweet for sure. Um, I said I'll be interested to see what this one does over time. But it's, it's, it's pretty good whiskey. So going back to David, um, over at Whiskey Ring, he actually just, there's a little bit of nuttiness to that maybe. I don't know. A lot more spice. Um, he just streamed an episode with, or he just released an episode with Alan Bishop. And if you don't know how Alan, who Alan Bishop is, you obviously haven't been here for very long. Alan was actually the first... Um, I think he was the first interview that I actually did. Maybe it was the second interview. Um, let's see if I can be really loud. Um, Alan's a super interesting character. Um, definitely the kind of person that you would want making your whiskey, I think, or at least in my opinion. Uh, I told him, you know, we've always had this kind of running joke at 
work? What would you do if you won Powerball? Um, and in our episode, I told him, or in, in the, the conversation that he and I had, I told him, I've always told people, you know, aside from, aside from, you know, like buying a house, frivolous spending, I would take as much money as I needed to and I would start a brand and I would hire Alan to do my distilling and I would hire Nancy Fraley to help out with the blending and flavor profiles. And I would run that until all of the money was gone or until we were all rich, one or the other. I think it'd be a super fun, exciting experience. All that to say, David just did an interview with Alan Bishop, and I am 90% of the way through it, and it is absolutely fantastic. It's talking about his Whiskey Witch, which is a single barrel offering that Alan has um, with a unique flavor profile, a unique mash bill, a unique um, ethos for creation, a whole bunch of stuff. And David, being the smart guy that he is, he's able to ask really interesting and very specific uh, questions and kind of maybe speak some of that distiller speak. I absolutely am not the person that can do that, um, but it's obviously fun to listen to. It's like it, it is similar to listening to one of the distillers talk episodes that um, Alan and Christy and uh, whoever else he has happens to have on. There was an episode specifically with Pat Heist um, that was you know fantastic, but those, those were some it's a great episode, great opportunity for you to go out and listen to that um, and see what's going on. So we got our first taste out of the way. Uh, we'll continue in this uh, finish with toasted sugar maple wood. Um, this one's coming from Tennessee, sort of, as well. Um, if you've been around whiskey for very long, you've seen the the Sweetens Cove, their, their first and second batches. Um, priced a little bit out of my range for at least a, an entry um, into the marketplace, you know, it was, it was pretty significant without, uh, an age statement to back it up, but they just released, um, the Kennessy offering, which is what this is. We're going to do a Kennessy offering, which is a, a lower price point. Um, it's got some good proof to it. I've seen a lot of positive reviews on it. Um, once again, we're probably not the podcast to be doing <laughs> reviews or anything of the sort, but, um, we're going to at least give this an opportunity to, to taste uh, because I was really excited about what Marion Eves was doing with that particular group. And I've said it before, uh, there's a number of celebrities that are involved in the Sweetens Cove project. And if I had to pick one of them, that would be sort of my moonshot interview. Uh, it might not be what you would expect. Uh, one of the uh, musical artists named Drew Holcomb is a part of this particular brand, or at least was for the, the first handful of bottles. And um, that's that's a musician that my family uh, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoys. It was the first real in-person concert that both of my daughters ever went to. Um, it was at the Rhyme, and it was a fantastic show. So that's sort of my moonshot. You know, Peyton Manning's involved in Andy Roddick's involved in Love to talk to Andy Roddick. Love to talk to Peyton Manning. But realistically, I, I would much more prefer to talk to, to Drew Holcomb about it or even Marion Eves. But that one's sort of outside the, the scope of what I think is possible for myself. Um, so that's uh, Sweetens Cove. But what is still going on here um, this weekend? This weekend is super exciting. It's a, it, This weekend is the This Is My Bourbon Weekend. Um, so 
Uh, Perry and Eric have put together a meetup weekend in Lexington where they're going to release the uh, new Rift bottle and a host of other things are going to happen. There's going to be some super interesting characters are going to be involved. Um, but uh, what I'm excited about is that I was able to actually go and be a part of the selection group for this bottle of new Riff. Uh, first single barrel selection I've ever done and told them from the beginning and I've said it here before and maybe repeat myself, but yeah, it is what it is. Um, I was going to be of very minimal help to them in selecting uh, anything because um, I'm just there to enjoy the experience. Don't have a great pro, a great palate. I enjoy what I enjoy. I don't enjoy what I don't enjoy. Um, and the 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 barrel that I really wanted to pick was the first one everybody wanted to eliminate. It was the most off profile um, that there was. But that's the kind of thing that I'm sort of into. You can definitely tell that that is toasted to a degree. I did say that, right? Yeah, finished with toasted sugar maple wood. I think that I've read somewhere that they use spirals in this. Uh, so like a, a toasted wood spiral that they've dropped down inside whiskey to help finish it out. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Not specifically what they're doing, but about what someone else is, is doing and discussing. Um, another brand that I happen to come across through social media. But anyways, I'm going to get a chance to go up and spend some time with uh, the guys from This Is My Bourbon podcast. Um, I think the the folks from WhiskeyChannel.com might be there. Um, Jason from Mash and Drum. And if you're watching this, if you happen to show up to this live, which I don't think anybody has, so that's fine. Um, sort of what I expect. But if you happen to show up to this, I think that Jason from Mash and Drum is live streaming right now. You're probably better off going over there and watching what he's got to say. This will sit. This will this will be perfectly fine for you to watch three minutes of later on. Hmm. It's pretty warm. Uh, what is it? Hundred and something proof? Hundred and ten proof? Okay. It it drinks hundred and ten proof to me. Um, there's a lot of notes that exist out there but um, it's definitely a toasted bourbon a little bit of a little bit of spiciness to it a little bit of proofiness to it it is pretty full doesn't have a really really long finish on it um, I'll leave it up to you whether you think it's worth it or not packaging is on it is great um, the the flavors on it connect to a lot of things that I am interested in maybe just a little bit more spicy than I would want and it's not really even a um, it's not like a black black pepper or white pepper spice. It's, it's some other type of spice that's in there. Um, but what hangs out afterwards is is pretty good. It's pretty good. So, like I said, super excited about that. And then I think I'm gonna get a chance to go do a distillery tour uh, with a with another podcast friend. Um, We'll see if that works out. We'll talk about that maybe next week uh, on a live stream. And then I've got a series of other interviews that are coming up in the very, very near future. Um, you know, I've in, in the past, I've sort of kept those things, I don't want to say under wraps. I'm not trying to keep a secret, but it's been more of a, um, I want to make sure they happen or they're going to happen before I talk about them. But... Um, I'm excited. I'm excited about some of the things that are happening. So what I've lined up on the next round of 
episodes that are coming. I've got uh, hopefully going to have some folks from um, Scotch Malt Whiskey Society of America join me. Uh, I want to talk through kind of what they're doing. I, I don't know a ton of things about scotch. And, you know, going to buy scotch is like, uh, for, for a bourbon fanatic, is a lot like uh, a scotch fanatic going to buy bourbon uh, in the United States. There are a ton of labels. There are a ton of um, different things that you have to consider whenever you're going in to buy. Um, at least with bourbon, you know, you, you have a generically... Uh, common flavor profile, but then you have the, is it a rye, is it, is it a rye bourbon, is it a weeded bourbon, is it a four grain bourbon, is it a finished bourbon, like there's a lot of things that kind of go into play, and in, in scotch it's a very similar vein, but it is a far less familiar palate for me, and so uh, I think what Scotch, scotch Malt Whiskey Society specifically does um, is really interesting. So I want to talk to them. I asked them if they would be willing to join me um, so we can talk through some of the things that they've been working on, you know, kind of w why they are created. Um, then before that, I should have an episode with an author. Um, her name is Shelly Sackier. Sackier, I think is how you pronounce that. Um, she's writing a book uh, that she's getting ready to release. It's called Make It a Double, and it is um, it's a woman's perspective on discovering whiskey and having a lifelong passion for discovering whiskey. And I think uh, I want to make more space for things like that in our um, in our marketplace, whatever you want to call it, because, uh, you know, we've, we've talked to a couple of different folks around women in whiskey, and sometimes representation isn't the greatest. Sometimes it's a little lacking. So um, I'm going to talk to her. And then after that, I've got an episode lined up with the guys over at Penelope. We were supposed to do that um, a couple weeks ago. And, you know, stuff just sort of came up. I had a last-minute work trip where I had to go to Chicago. Um, and I reached out to them. I was like, hey, is there any way we can postpone? And they we're actually going to work on something I think that's going to be pretty interesting. So uh, Matt, Mike, and Danny are, are really kind of helping me out. I'm going to hop on. We're going to have a discussion. I was able to, uh, you know, I've known uh, Matt for a little while <laughs> through social media. And then Mike and Danny, I met them at um, Whiskey Week in Batch 4. And didn't, you know, spend any like one-on-one -on -one time to them. Like they, they, they probably still don't know me from uh, a stranger. But I did get a chance to talk to them, ask some questions, kind of understand more about, the creation of their brand and try to inform what we're going to talk about with them. Um, so that's sort of the plan there. And then after that, um, Jake from key in the lake slash starward, I'll have him come on. Um, I have a few things I want to talk to him about and he's agreed to, we do not have a date set. The other three I have dates set for, I don't have a date set for him. And then I've got a couple other people that I'm just trying to do some initial planning, but I did get a um, pretty solid confirmation that he would be willing to join me. Um, we've moved on to the next one. So, you know, we went through Sweetens Cove and Company Distilling, both Tennessee-ish whiskeys. Um, well, Tennessee brands, maybe, whatever you want to call it. Now we're moving into 
uh, more common ground for me. So uh, Maker's Mark has their whiskey drop, which is their you know sort of fan club. I guess maybe it's an elevated fan club. It's a more exclusive fan club because um, you've got the ambassadors, but then the whiskey drop are people who sign up for a subscription service, and four times a year they get a couple of bottles. Sometimes it's a unique thing. Sometimes it's uh, you know some things that are more widely available. You know things like the um, FAE FAE O one and O two the um, SP, I can't remember what they were, but you know, the, the license plate series as they've been dubbed and then, um, some other single barrels. Well, this time around, this, I think is actually pretty interesting to me. Um, they sent out a, I don't know if it's necessarily a competition, but they sent out two bottles that are sort of linked to each other and they're single barrels that were selected by two different employee types and let me see if I can peel this off on stream without making a terrible mess um, this red wax can be problematic it is a fantastic marketing tool distinct I love the way it looks but it can be a bear it's not quite as bad as some other brands uh, wax I'm not calling any names of Jim Beam products that use it but what they put out which is interesting and if you're not a part of the whiskey drop and you can be maybe you should be um, is they put out a single barrel. One is considered the one is a master distiller selection, and the other is a master of maturation selection. And so basically, we have the ability to compare: does the master distiller uh, meet my flavor profile, or does the master of maturation? meet my flavor profile they both have very distinct and unique jobs within that particular brand to, to put things out it's a great opportunity to try things and i think there's going to be some really uh interesting other bottles that are going to come available in the next whiskey drop so what they're doing later on but um, getting back to talking about <laughs> things out there so those are the the upcoming episodes i have we're almost 30 minutes in and i have yet to mention anything beyond what's going on in my life. So last week, early this week, I can't remember, I came across a particular upcoming brand that is uh, utilizing TikTok pretty heavily. Uh, I still don't understand the value of TikTok for a whiskey brand or for even myself. Um, maybe it's a generational problem. Maybe us Jet Xers just don't get it. In the same way that our parents looked at the internet like it was a ridiculous thing, we may be looking at TikTok like it's a ridiculous thing. I just tend to think that TikTok actually is a ridiculous thing. Anyways, um, so they hit all these buzzwords. They hit all these fantastic buzzwords of veteran-owned, organic crop, sustainable production, um, waste reduction, rapid aging. They have all of these things that they're sort of connecting on. And is it marketing gimmickry or is it legitimate things? And so they've, they've latched on to something that I talked on and talked about in the past of this potential shortage of barrels and or wood in the future. And the fact that, um, you know, the, and the art of making a barrel is an incredibly wasteful process because you only get one to two barrels per tree. Um, and, the, the way that bourbon has to be aged, you know, the fact that it has to be an entire barrel, you know, they're, they're looking for aging 
at the bottle level potentially by adding it wood wooden spires, which you know someone in the marketplace is already doing something very very similar to that. Um, but they're they're hitting all these buzzwords that are going to be really really attractive to um, folks that have specific mentalities around um, sustainability, around crops, around a host of other things. But you have to be sort of cautious about that. And, you know, I've, I've, I've got a little bit of experience around the concept of farming. So that's why I wanted to talk about crops tonight. And, you know, it also makes sense to talk about crops considering we're in the midst of prime corn planting season. Um, and we're coming out of harvest, harvest season for things like wheat, things like rye, things that are the overwinter crops that, that people are putting in their fields, whether they're cover crops or whatever else happens to be. But, you know, this focus on organic crops makes it feel like you're getting something safer, something more valuable, non-GMO. There's, there's a bunch of buzzwords that exist. And one of the things that you have to be cautious about is that organic doesn't necessarily mean that it is chemical free. It just means that they only use chemicals that still allow it to be organic. And so there's a very distinct list of things that they can put on crops. And, you know, this particular brand hinged on the fact that if someone sprayed some type of a chemical on the ground, then it's going to stay with that corn through harvest, through milling, through mash, through distillation and end up in the barrel or in the barrel. And then subsequently in the bottle. And how that is, you know, kind of sort of negative to you. But then in the same advertisement, they're using this concept of, you know, it is more important that, you know, whenever they use these spires for aging the whiskey, the whiskey absorbs all the toxins and then they pull it out of the barrel, they hang it up and they let it dry out. And those toxins then dry out. And so I was sort of curious, like, how is it that the toxins that are absorbed into the chemical or into the to the charcoal spire that they're using just dissipate with air based off of this spire as opposed to dissipating in the air on the corn while it's in the field or being left behind during the distillation process or any host of other times where that particular chemical could drop off so it just felt like a lot of gimmickry um, I'm not going to name a name I'm not going to get into that because You'll either ever see them or you won't. They may be a thing. But um, let's talk about crops. That's a problem right there. That is a problem because I think I know which one I prefer. And the one that I prefer, I don't know, maybe it makes more sense. I have to go back and forth a little bit on that one. So let's talk about crops. Let's, let's get into this. We're 30 minutes in. It's time to talk about this. Maybe I can burn through this in 15 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever. Um, there's not a ton of necessarily new information uh, for anybody out there that has been following um, bourbon, whiskey, anything along that lines. But So in, in the United States, uh, largely corn and wheat are considered what would be um, cash crops uh, because of pricing, because of consumption, because of international markets, a whole host of reasons. Those are going to be primary cash crops, and they're grown in alternating seasons. Corn is usually a summertime crop, and wheat is an overwinter crop. You know, there'll be a lot of um, 
a lot of wheats that are put in specifically in the south, specifically in Kentucky, um, during the winter months. It allows for a number of different things to happen. You know, weed control happens because you're putting something specific there, and so it's drowning out weeds. It's adding potentially adding nitrogen back into the soil, a whole, a whole different list of things that are happening. Rye is also considered a cover crop, but it is used significantly less in the state of Kentucky because, um, number one, it doesn't grow super well here, and number two, you know, like rye is okay with um, less than stellar soil, right? It, it doesn't have to have, I'm trying to remember exactly what it was, um, what it was that Ari told me about rye, but rye is just a hardy grain. It, 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 it sort of lives on its own. As a result, it does well in poor soil, but it also is not a significant cash crop in the United States, and so it's largely used as a cover crop. It's not something that people focus on for profitability. And then if you take it a step further, um, barley is a significant afterthought in North America. And so when you look at the four main grains that are a part of the bourbon industry, only two of them are considered cash crops that are going to make a farmer profitable, and the other two are... Um, secondary crops, things that you might grow for fun or whatever. Yep, it's pretty straightforward for me. We'll go back to another taster in a second, and then we'll know for sure. But in Kentucky, we consider bourbon to be our native spirit. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again here. Um, our native spirit technically is going to be rye because um, it's going to be one of the first whiskeys that were made in North America, and whenever there was significant quantities of rye being made, it, it was being made in this area. We technically weren't even a state yet. We were still a part of Virginia, um, but rye was the primary source of uh, whiskey creation. Now, it's whiskey creation in the sense that this is going to be largely white dog. There wasn't a ton of, you know, uh, charred barrel aging that wasn't significantly a thing, and a lot of um, colonial whiskey is going to be a white whiskey just based off of how it was done. But the um, the Civil War helped to spread what would be considered sweeter whiskeys from the South to the rye drinkers who actually prevailed in the war. Um, and so this corn, right, and so corn being a crop that is not necessarily native to, to the United States specifically, where rye sort of is um, wheat sort of is but like understanding the cultivation of these things is slightly different doesn't really matter um the civil war helped spread the interest in bourbon and then if we or the interest in corn-based whiskeys uh, sweeter whiskeys and then as you know kentucky becomes a state well, kentucky became a state before the civil war but um as bourbon became a thing as people started kind of investing into it corn whiskey sort of took off because the state of kentucky specifically has really good soil for growing corn it's one of our most significant cash crops in the state um, and i think i read somewhere where we have the ability to produce all the corn that is needed to create all of the whiskey that we want to create in the state which is a pretty significant feat but barley so we'll, we'll backtrack a little bit to the less less interesting, less uh, common uh, crop of barley. Without a doubt, the Master of Maturation Selection Bottle is my favorite, and that may be one of the better bourbons that I've had in the last little bit. 
there's a really like a, a very a deep dark flavor to it um, which I guess would make sense if it's the master of maturation. Um, she's really just focusing on making sure that it is aged well and aged appropriately. Anyways, backing back up. So barley is largely produced commercially for livestock feed. Uh, it's um, something that decreased in or declined in production, growth, whatever you want to call it, um, because of the profitability of corn, soybeans, and wheat specifically, very, very specifically, right? So corn and soybeans are sort of king in the state uh, that for summertime crops, and then wheat is going to be king for you know fall and winter type crops. Um, barley usually is a lower priced uh, product than wheat, lower, lower. Um, has a lower degree of profitability as far as the crop is concerned. And the quantity of barley demanded has been low over time, right? There's been other means of feed, other means of consumption. But more recently, um, demand for it has increased slightly, very, 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 very slightly. Um, part of it is an increase in interest in whole grain foods, for breakfast cereals, a host of other things. As we want to get um, more healthy and understand our connection to our food, we want less processing, so that means we want whole foods, and barley can kind of meet that. Um, and then there's an increase in interest because the the swine and poultry industries are looking for cheaper grains to feed. If we think, you know, corn and soy are high, um, higher value, higher priced commodities, and you're wanting to be able to, to grow your chickens or your pigs as fast as you can, as cheap as you can, to be able to get the most amount of money per, uh, per pound, you want something cheaper. How do you feed them cheaper and still maintain some degree of quality? Um, so there's an increase in the demand. But the problem is, is that the demand increase has not also led to an increase in the price of barley. It hasn't been a, a linear hand handheld um, pattern. It is corn and soybean and wheat still reign supreme price-wise and barley does not. And so there's an increase in demand, um, but not an increase in price. And so as a farmer, you're not going to want to make that choice to go ahead and grow barley. Beyond that, you know, uh, technology advances. We, you know, different varieties are created and we find ways to take the same acres and create more barley for it and so that's the, the sort of the second facet to it is that I can get more barley off of the same acres but I'm still not getting a ton more money for it and so there's not been an increase in acres farmed there may be an increase in output but not an increase in acres that are farmed and so barley for um, whiskey concerns is not grown on a great scale in the state of Kentucky and you know it's one of the essential ingredients one of the primary um, things that we need specifically for the malted barley, for the enzymatic conversion or whatever you want to call it. Um, not a ton of it being done here, right? So if we're talking about crops, we're talking about the four main crops, it's not it's not something that you can consider largely for the state. If you, you know, if you do a quick Google, you'll find a handful of malting houses and people that are growing um, barley with the intent of selling to distillers. It's just... It's not a significant quantity. Hey, hey, Zachary Jones. Right now we're drinking random whiskeys and talking about crops. 
Um, if you've got anything you want me to bring up, let me know. We went through Company Distilling. We went through Sweetens Cove. We went through, sorry, Sweetens Cove, Tennessee. Let's be specific. It's not the expensive one. It's the cheap one because I'm too poor for the other ones. And then um, Maker's Mark's Whiskey Drop Series where they just did with the Master Distiller Selection and the Master of Maturation Selection. I'm kind of comparing the two. And thank you for saying, hey, beautiful. I think that it is probably time for you to talk to your optometrist if that's where you're landing as far as your thoughts that this is beautiful. But hey, you know, I appreciate it. Um, you know, I, I almost thought about a crop top, but I'm very concerned that my wife would come up here and think that I've already started that OnlyFans page that she's been on me to start for a long time and I've been hiding the money from her. Um, so, you know, that kind of runs the, the gambit of barley. Barley is less than a significant crop in the United States or in Kentucky specifically. But wheat, wheat on the other hand, is absolutely not. So within the state of Kentucky, we're looking at, you know, 30 plus million bushels of, of winter wheat that was harvested on, you know, probably a tenth of those, tenth of the acre. So, or maybe one hundredth. I don't know. I can't do math tonight. It's, it's not that night. Wheat is, you know, a non-native crop. It was brought here by colonists and it sort of sees this weird growth patterns as people um as people in the country became you know there's a ton of 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 wheat that was being grown and sold in the united states to be able to make bread make a host of other things uh, flour whatever you want um but then you hit this sort of craze that that, that is created that oh we can't eat that because of gluten gluten's going to kill us all it's going to be the worst thing that's ever happened um what we see is a slump in wheat production, right? And so if we're looking for uh, mass quantities of wheat to exist, to be able to, to make wheated whiskeys, uh, we start competing with the bread companies. Um, it's still considered a pretty significant cash crop in this state. It is something that um, people can make a living. It's, you know, sort of a, an off-season crop for them. They're able to put it in, overwinter it, pull it back out, make some money off of it. Um, so if you're looking at a distiller who says, oh, we source all of our grain locally, if they're talking about the corn or the wheat, they likely are. If they're talking about rye or malted barley, they are likely lying. Unless they're um, doing it at a very, very, very small level. And one of the interesting things, so this is what I kind of came in as we kind of transitioned to thinking about uh, rye specifically, is when human beings domesticate wild plants, right? So they take everything came from a wild plant. Corn at one point in time looked more like grass than it does uh, like corn now. Um, and so whoever's watching right now, you're going to be super bored. It just is what it is. Um but when we domesticate these plants, we change the characteristics. And if we go back and anthropologically look at it, we're able to see whenever it went from a wild plant to a domesticated plant because we're starting to selectively breed it. We're starting to try to get specific characteristics out of it. But rye is one of those crops that we can't directly point to when it became domesticated because rye became a, rye started as a wild plant, but then it became a wheat, a weed that was a byproduct of growing wheat, right? As we were kind of uh, 
trying to, we were domesticating wheat. Rye was growing interspersed in there. And so it became a weed to us. Instead of just a wild plant, it became a weed. And then at some point in time, we started uh, consuming it as just a byproduct of consuming wheat and barley. Um, and eventually becomes domesticated. But so we can't point to like at, you know, 18 or 1422 is whenever rye got domesticated or, you know, 1200 or whatever the time frame is because it, because it made this weird transition. But rye specifically in the state of Kentucky is, um, it's a cover crop, plain and simple. It's intended to suppress weeds and reduce soil erosion. And, um, it, it is, uh, it does have the intent of capturing nitrogen and putting it back into the soil, adding in, you know, organic matter, a ton of other things, but it doesn't grow super, super well, um, in this particular state. It's, um, I guess it grows just fine, but it's just not super, super profitable. Um, what is interesting to think about, I think, <laughs> what I find interesting isn't always interesting, but what is interesting to think about is that if we look at the historical farmer and how we're creating bourbon now specifically, we'll just talk about bourbon specifically is corn is the primary ingredient corn, you know, 51% corn always corn is a summertime crop. The secondary grains in these malted barley being the, you know, the thing that we use for the enzymatic reaction. But if we think about rye, or we think about wheat, those are what would be um, fall slash winter crops. So those would be things that would be put in after corn. And so what we're ending up with in the bottle, whenever we look at these things is a crop cycle. We're looking at a, a growing season. We're looking at um, a farmer's year to year profitability. And so they, for the historical farmer, if you were looking at it, they would probably have a corn whiskey and have a rye whiskey, rye or wheat whiskey, um, because they're trying to convert their dried grain into something that is storable, right? And so, if they wanted a blend, a whiskey that it was, you know, part corn, part rye, it would probably be blending after the distillation process actually happened. Um, have absolutely no um, historical evidence to prove that, or to even think about that, or did we even, you know, have blended whiskeys, or was it just like Whatever it was we had available is what we actually um, took care of. And it might be more likely that you could create a mash over, out of leftover corn and rye or wheat. Um, if you take the summer and you harvest the corn and then you let it sit through the winter and then you use the next year's um, rye or wheat crop to create the whiskey, that might work because that corn would overwinter just fine. But neither here nor there. Um most of the rye that we use for bourbon is grown in Europe, right? And that's that's just sort of a, a common piece of knowledge. And if you think about it from sustainability stake or just from a sheer cost perspective, um, bringing rye from Europe here is not inexpensive. And so, you know, what do you do about that? Places like... Woodford Reserve have taken initiatives to try to reintroduce growing rye as a um, cash crop in the state with the interest of bringing um, the crop back here. And so if we go back to, I think it's in the 2020, roughly, um, they picked up 26 farmers, began farming rye again. 
something around 1,500 acres. The interest was in for them to grow that 1,500 acres to 10,000 acres. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, tenfold growth approximately. So they can not only, you know, add an additional crop into the Kentucky farmer's um, Rolodex of profitability, but they can decrease their overall cost in being able to uh, pick up and maybe even have higher quality grain because they have, you know, kind of more... um, more control over what the output actually is. Um, so now that I've gone through the maker's mark, we're, we're moving to the last one here. And this is, I don't know, maybe this is fitting, I guess. Um, we have the Jack Daniels triple mash, right? So Jack Daniels just put these out. They're um, everywhere, reasonably, reasonably priced. It's bottled and bond. It's a blend of American malt, rye, and Tennessee whiskey. And so um, there's going to be corn, there's going to be malt there's gonna be barley there's gonna be rye or there may be even some wheat mixed in somewhere for good measure um and it's all bonded whiskey so it's bottled and bond 100 proof uh, my assumption is they have all three of those were bonded whiskeys that they blended together or maybe they uh, mashed it of all three no i think that's got to be it's got to be that way i don't need to see if this is important all right um so Rye. So rye specifically is an interesting thing in the United States, right? So it is, its popularity, uh, at least in the coastal states and the um, colonies, came out of a lack of molasses from the Caribbean countries uh, for rum distillation. Rum was huge in colonial America, Uh Maybe it was out of proximity to the Caribbean. Maybe it was because it was a new and unique spirit. Largely because of... Oh, there's a mustiness to that. Largely because of the the English's hostility and their you know controlling of the Atlantic Ocean, their colonialism, whatever you want to call it. Um, but as the Caribbean molasses started to dry up, the colonists needed to find a way to be able to make their own distillate and rye specifically in the new york pennsylvania virginia maryland area is going to grow really really well and we we're seeing a resurgence of pennsylvania rye we're seeing uh, empire rye which none of these are carrying i don't think any of them are carrying any uh, ttb restrictions yet um, but I believe they're looking for those, or at least state-level restrictions. Um, same with, same thing with Virginia and Maryland. Um, you can still uh, go to Virginia, go to the uh, I think Mount Vernon, and get a replica of George Washington's whiskey that he was making, which is going to largely be a rye whiskey, because that was what was super, super popular in that particular area at that particular time. I don't know what to think of this. You can definitely taste the malt in that. Malty, malty, malt, malt, malt. So, um, sort of finishing this 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 rye thought process. Rye is this is is one of those spirits, or at least here recently, that um, is starting to gain a little bit of its resurgence. You know, I, I've I've heard distillers and brands talk about the inability to get rid of rye a handful of years ago because we were in the middle of the bourbon bust, the bourbon boom, sorry, not the bust, 
Bourbon Boom, and nobody really cared about rye. But as it becomes harder to pick up um, specific bourbons, specific things you're trying to try, the marketplace gets a little crowded and, and confusing or whatever, rye is gaining popularity. And so to kind of polish this all off, we're going to hit the High West uh, Rendezvous Rye. They have their own, um, I don't remember what it's called, Pioneer Series, something. I don't know. They've, they've got their own little uh, club that they're putting out where you can kind of uh, subscribe and they'll send you some special bottles or whatever. Mine just came in and I haven't had, I've had their bourbon, I've had a single barrel of their bourbon, I've had their double rye which the double rye that I had, I didn't particularly care for. It just had a unique flavor profile that I wasn't necessarily interested in. But this is the first rendezvous rye that I've had from them, and that is it's a rye. So um, rye is gaining traction, gaining popularity in the United States. It's um, Is the rendezvous worth a buy, or is the triple mash worth a buy? Which one are you asking, Zach? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause for a minute and let you answer that because, hey, you're here and you're interacting and I absolutely want to answer you. Uh, I would say the Jack Daniels Triple Mash for sure is worth a buy uh, because it's not super expensive as long as somebody's got it jacked up on prices. If it's an MSRP, no reason you shouldn't pick it up. Um, Rendezvous Rye, I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to have to sit on this one. I may have to try it a couple different times because I'm a little bit finicky on the rise that I do like. The Triple Mash, yes. Absolutely buy the Triple Mash. Um, you know, 35 bucks. that's a quality whiskey. It's got some unique flavor to it. You can definitely taste the maltiness, the, the fruitiness, the dustiness almost. Um, it's 100 proof. I mean, where else do you find a $35, 100 proof whiskey that's blended from Jack Daniels like this? Um, I don't know. I, I think it's definitely, definitely worth it. Um, so, anyways, rye's picking up a resurgence. The the crop is uh, picking up some traction in the United States. Uh, when we talked to Ari, you know, he's working on a project to try to get Rosen rye um, kind of reinstituted in the state. Uh, I've heard some interest some, from some folks in New York wanting to have their own um, rye variety there. Um, you know, it's all it's all interesting stuff. So. All that to say, we've tasted through six things. We've talked for roughly an hour, maybe 10 minutes worth of good content in here. So if you're still hanging out, I appreciate it. Um, that's all I got. So thanks for tuning in for this offering from the Embellished Podcast. If you enjoyed this, please leave me a review on whatever platform you have to be consuming this on. And give me a follow so you can keep up with what's going on here. I can be found at embellishedpod.com with all of my links, accounts, and contact details. I'll be back again next week with another new offering for you. So until then, cheers and thanks for hanging out.